Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is the part three in a series of reading the Bible. And this one's reading the Bible through the lens of the movie Apocalypse Now. The first one was about professional wrestling. Then we talked about a goose. And now we're using Apocalypse Now, the movie. All right. So over the centuries, an idea keeps popping back up to convince us that Jesus was just like any other teacher, that he was not divine, he was not supernatural, and that this myth is like any other old myth. Uh, they tell us that it's just the dominant narrative, so we're told, because it's, it has served the power structures of the West. But that tale doesn't tell us much, because if it were only a story, then why didn't any of the other myths come to dominate the landscape? After all, it's just a story, right? So there was this famous book that killed the faith of many called The Golden Bough, which was a study on ancient religious rituals. C.S. Lewis, the writer, uh, famous Christian apologist and uh, fantasy novel writer, uh, he wrote about the impact that, that The Golden Bough had on his dive into atheism. And in his own reconversion story, he told about it. This, his reconversion story was called Surprised by Joy. Um, there's a book called The Spiritual Odyssey of C.S. Lewis, and here's what someone said about him and his relationship to this book called The Golden Bow. Lewis's atheism gained intellectual grounding when, at age 16, he came under the influence of a private tutor, W.T. Kirkpatrick, who was much enamored of a new work by Sir James Fraser called The Golden Bow. The Golden Bough was the product of Fraser's monumental survey of all the world religions and mythologies he could lay his hands on. In general, Fraser regarded religion as a human effort to make sense of the frightening and incomprehensible. Thunder, pestilence, famine, death, and so on. In particular, Fraser found in human cultures a recurring story of a dying and resurrected God. This God usually was associated with agriculture and fertility, just as in the cycle of nature the plant is broken, the seed enters the ground, and life springs up. So is the God broken, buried, and restored. So, if there is one takeaway from Fraser's Golden Bough book on ancient grain gods, it's that he's right. All religions are the same, except for one. So just as C.S. Lewis discovered, there is one single religion that doesn't fit the mold. Yes, they are all the same except for the one because there is only one true God. And there are many grains of truth in most religions, but they all have a fatal flaw, and some have two flaws or five flaws. Christ is the polar opposite of every other kingly sacrifice or grain sacrifice in human history. It's the inversion. Now, if I may briefly take a short aside, The Golden Bough is a book that influenced many flatteners of faith. And when I say flatteners, it means to make Christianity the same as everything else. It takes the all the religions are the same approach to history and culture. And it's a very interesting read. I have it here um, in my house. But the centerpiece of James C. Fraser's myth argument is wrong. He's selling the very same story as the succession myth of Baal or Zeus, where the old God is slain by the new God. But if you attempt to throw Christianity into this melting pot, well, Jesus just climbs out of the pot. He's nothing like the rest of the religions, whether they are from ancient times or from our own mo modern cults that we pretend are not religious in nature. In the Golden Bough, there's a myth called the King of the Grove or Rex Nemorensis. And 
always apologize for some of my pronunciations of Latin or names in the Bible and so on. Um, but the king of the grove is about a king who must be ever vigilant in fear of losing his power because he will be killed. Um, he'll lose his power by getting killed. So someday, someone will come to the grove and take his power and his life. So this should pique your interest, perhaps, because national politics or office politics is the exact same thing as this ancient king of the grove, just without the sword. Uh, the ruler of the coffee pot or refrigerator is the same as the ruler of a nation, just on a smaller scale. So winners must maintain a grip on power or someone else will take it. And of course, no matter how long you hold on to power over the coffee pot or refrigerator, memento mori, remember, one day you will die and a new power will arise. So thus, to protect power beyond your own lifespan, you need more money, land, influence, supporters, cheerleaders, bullets, etc. And in other words, you need to take and keep possession. And possession is, once again, the meaning of the name Cain from the last episode, which we were talking about. Now, a few decades ago, after I watched Apocalypse Now, I spent some days thinking about the myth that the movie is based on, which ties into Fraser's myth around this king of the grove. The movie plays on this myth, even panning over a stack of books in one scene to show what Colonel Kurtz has been reading, which contains the book, The Golden Bough. So if you watch the movie, it's near the end when Colonel Kurtz is in his lair and he's got these stack of books and uh, Marlon Brando's acting very strange as the leader of this tribe in the jungle. Now, when a movie shows a book in the background, it is a signal to the watchers with giant red flashing lights to inform us this movie is somehow related to the themes of the book you see that is not so subtly displaying in the background. Books are not just sitting in the background by accident in, in movies. In fact, there are no accidents in Hollywood. Um, Apocalypse Now was based on Joseph Conrad's novel called Heart of Darkness, but also on themes and ideas from Fraser and this King of the Grove myth. So ancient kings were also priests. So the words go together in this context, the priest king, because in the, in the pagan or pre-Christian world, religion and power definitely went together. And they still do. We just, don't pre we just pretend we don't have religion today. Everyone says they're a nun, N-O-N-E. Um, and Jesus came to shatter that illusion. We all have religion. We certainly do. We just don't call it that sometimes. Even the Israelites found out how lust for power plays out when there is an attempt to make power into a religion. Um, yeah, when they wanted a king, they were not supposed to want a king. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like other nations. Um, and that's where they get in trouble. That's in the book of Samuel. But that's where the trouble begins, really. Um, so this king of the grove holds power only because he has killed the prior king. So in the myth, he has come to the grove, he's killed the prior king, and now he holds the power until someone comes and takes him down. So this took a bit to wrap my head around at first, but here's the verse from this myth, the king of the grove, that, that I think sums up the problem of worldly kingship and possession of power. Those trees in whose dim shadow the ghastly priest doth reign, the priest who slew the slayer and shall himself be slain. So the priest who slew the slayer and shall himself be slain. That's um, kind of a little um, tongue twister there. So who does this sound like in the Bible? Well, it sounds like Cain or Lamech. It does not sound like Seth 
the one who invokes the name of God. Um, it does not sound like the suffering servant of Isaiah who bore our infirmities. It does not sound like Jesus who died on the cross, conquered death, defeated the devil, and transformed our suffering. Um, the last will be first. It's um, in, in the king of the grove myths, it's the first will be first. Um, Jesus possessed nothing and he gave everything. He is a king unlike any other that has ever been conceived in myth. So if we break this apart, the priest king of the grove in this myth who rules is the murderer of the former king. In taking the grove, he had to kill the former priest king, and now he is a, quote, ghastly murderer. And this current ghastly priest king will be killed by the next priest king. In other words, it's this vicious circle. Now, when I was growing up, the term rat race referred to people who were racing up the corporate ladder. You can see the same, uh, quote, king of the grove or king of the hill in those pursuing the position of, say, vice president at a company or control of like the local youth baseball board. But really, if you back up enough, this is still pro wrestling in a nutshell. It's also the story of politics over and over and over around the world since Cain and his line to Lamech to Caesar to Donald Trump to Joe Biden, king of the grove. The king of the grove is much like the King Woods I was talking about in the first episode of the series of pro wrestling. And like King Woods, he was the ruler of a, a little fiefdom, a kind of a pathetic little fiefdom because he was the holder of the championship belt in wrestling. It's interesting that Woods and Grove are kind of the same thing, which is surely just a lucky coincidence, but worth noting. King Woods, the wrestler, did not need to murder to become the championship belt holder in wrestling, so he is actually less ghastly than the king of the grove of the myth. However, really, in most wrestling matches, there is some kind of cheating, so reaching the top and gaining power almost always requires a certain moral flexibility. And this is true in business, where if you are, quote, um, known as being a good businessman, that does not necessarily mean um, he is without mortal sin or he's good in any other way. It just means he's good at making money or chasing mammon, to use a biblical term. In most cases, gaining worldly power requires bending of the rules, or in other words, selling your soul in some way. This is precisely what Jesus meant when he said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So why is this king of the grove called ghastly in that little stanza I posted? Well, it's because he has really lost his soul in gaining the grove. The, the base word of ghastly, appropriately, is ghost, and ghost means spirit. And the bad spirit has taken over the soul of this king slash murderer who won the grove. So those who seek and wield power in this world paint themselves into a corner. And unless those souls experience the metanoia of turning to Christ, they may be lost forever. Metanoia means beyond the mind or change of mind or turning to God that kind of thing, turning your mind to God. To escape the pursuit of power, you have to see the world differently, and to see it differently, you have to put on the mind of Christ, as St. Paul says. So whether your power is in the WWE title belt, or the NBA finals, or the United States of America, or just having control over the TV remote control, or, or in this clump of trees like this King of the Grove, then the game is really the same. The King of the Grove has killed the prior king, and the king himself will be overthrown unless he can fend off all comers. But truly, even if he keeps his grip on the grove or the title belt, eventually, eventually a new king comes along. 
And this is the world of power that strives to reach the top. But getting to the top brings immense fear unless abandonment to God is made and that power is offered up to the creator. For the king who says, come at me, bro, he has gained the whole world, but really lost his soul. The ghastly king can never stop striving. And even more so, those in power must seek and sniff out enemies constantly rather than wait for them to come. Because being a king gives an acute sense of smell for anything that threatens the power over the little fiefdom or grove. And if you don't see this happening in America, then you need to ask yourself, why do we have a massive standing army at the ready at all times, if not to maintain our worldly power? Um, Our grove is just larger. It's from sea to shining sea. We even have many songs about our grove and rules, and we have movies, and we have titles, and we have flags. And ultimately, we have a king, a kind of spirit, which we call a republic, of which the current president embodies before passing it on to the next king of the grove every four or eight years. And our elections is kind of the battle that we have. So Jesus is not this kind of king. He's the opposite kind of king because he is the creator of all things. And he warns us, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. King of the grove would have heard that and been like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And so do we, but we, we don't really listen. We want power over others, over nature, over God, And the addiction to fear grabs us by the chest like a monster. It's like Lenny in Of Mice and Men grabbing the little rabbits and squeezing them. Um, Jesus is the king who simply allowed the enemies all to come all at once, all at once to slay him. But much to everyone's surprise, the slayer did not become the king. This is the devil's greatest mistake in history, of course. In fact, the slayers were all defeated. Death was defeated. Now, in Apocalypse Now, the dead Colonel Kurtz does not rise after death because he wasn't the savior. Um, He was just the current king of the Grove or the King Woods of the WWE. So, but Jesus does rise. So after he dies, he rises. And this makes all the difference. This is the difference between him and all other religions. Yet, hold on, wait, there's one more utterly important step in understanding why he is different than all the other power plays. This is really important. Jesus doesn't slay the slayer. He forgives the slayer. He forgives his enemies. Now that is different. That is what is truly, truly different. And when the slayer comes again and attempts to kill Jesus, he rises and forgives again and again, because every generation, the enemy whispers evil into the hearts of men and they try to slay Jesus the one true priest king, and yet he cannot die. But the slayers keep coming. But the true God, the living God, is never replaced. There is no succession myth. All the kings who claim succession or pretend at it, all of the gods of old, all of the ideologies of today that claim to have killed God are false. So yes, indeed, all religions are the same, except for one. It's the one where you try to kill God, he comes back and he forgives you. He doesn't exact revenge. So a lot of people are fooling themselves. Um, So we have this selling, this constant sales pitch that goes on, the crafting of stories. They, They have to do that because God is not dead. We're told God is dead all the time because he's not dead. They have to keep telling people that because they want them to believe it, but he can't be killed. So if you want followers of your worldly power, you need to tell people constantly in overt and subtle ways that God is dead with ever new messaging. Because if you stop convincing or coercing people for just a moment, they will instead listen to the law and love in their heart, and they will know that Christ is king and he is risen. And then they will follow him 
instead of some Caesar of this world. Okay, now let me leave that aside for a bit. My point is this, Jesus doesn't play power games like the King of the Grove myth. He's the anti-myth because he's real. He lived and he is risen. So for our lives here in this world, where we are given a chance to reunite with God, where we can purge our sins and pray for illumination with the light of faith, there is a greater concern than politics. There is a greater plan in the works. They say God is playing seven billion chess boards. We are one of those boards in this ultimate 3D dimensional, three-dimensional chess, and um, we don't know why this happens here and why that happens there, because it's his will being done, not ours. Now, to tie this back to the last episode with the goose on the side of the highway in the concrete jungle, what is out of place and in disharmony in the world, that is the difference between the brothers Cain and Seth. So Cain being the son who murders Abel and Seth being the son born after that who invokes the name of God, loves God. Cain strives to shape nature into his image and Seth lives humbly invoking the name of the Lord. We live in a world of Cain's values, not Seth's. And as we have all been pulled into cities and live in nations with weapons aimed at one another in constant fear, we are living in a world made by Cain and his progeny. We live in the city of man, not the city of God, which St. Augustine spent a thousand pages describing the difference. And the difference is striking as the goose family lives like Adam and Eve did before the fall. The reason animals are not fallen even if they are living in what Thomas Hobbes would call a world that is red in tooth and claw, the animals fulfill their duties of raising a family and seeking their daily bread, which might be bugs in their case. They do not have an intellect and will that lead them to murder over envy and pride as Cain did. They do not build weapons. They do not build highways and overpasses and retention ponds. Uh, Seth seems to live kind of like the goose. He prays and presumably works. Cain shows no sign of kneeling at all. In fact, when Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming, he's referring to the devil, the people who are serving that competition, that that small soul, that I got to get mine, look out for number one. But he also means not just the devil, but also the Roman guards who will arrest and kill him. That's the night he was arrested. He says the, the ruler of this world is coming. And we think, oh, he means the Roman guards, but he also means the devil. The devil has all the rulers of this world in his pocket. And that's what we want our rulers to not do. We want them to be more like Seth rather than Cain. And the Romans, just like Americans today, truly had a lot more in common with Cain than they did with Seth. The leaders and business people and celebrities that we admire today have more in common with the ruler of this world than with Jesus, unfortunately. Which brings up perhaps the greatest question in Genesis 4 of why God protected Cain with the mark after he had committed the murder of Abel. But the answer, I believe, is simple, and it's that God still loves Cain because he is worth saving. Cain has also created his own hell by separating himself from God because he is a wanderer, an exile, and God's protection is a penance. In Apocalypse Now, that's kind of what Colonel Kurtz is. He's this wandering exile. He's the king of this little fiefdom, but he's really got nothing. Um, he's like this shell. Um so furthermore, to show how God differs from much of our honor and shame ideas of justice, not only does God protect Cain, but he clearly uses him for some greater plan as cities and technology come from Cain's family. The punishment of being exiled to wander ruined Cain's livelihood of farming, making it a lifelong punishment. And his punishment is fitting and clearly agonizing to Cain 
as he is terrorized by fear and stripped of his occupation, his livelihood. Most importantly, when reading Genesis, there is an unfolding of events. There's an order to things. And people often look at Christ and say, why didn't God act like Jesus in the Old Testament? And well, we'll talk about this folding and unfolding in the next post. So thanks for listening. And this is part three of a series. We'll have a couple more. And I appreciate everyone's feedback and tuning in. Thanks.